psychedelics is almost like too narrow of a term. And I think really, I just see psychedelics as like this big marker that's saying we're at the start of this new era of doing serious pharmaceutical research on manipulating the brain to our liking or to our advantage. All right. What's up, everybody? This is the Other Life Podcast. I am Justin Murphy. I know what you're thinking, how handsome I am. I know I shaved my head. It's summer. Why not? Not my favorite look, to be honest, but uh, hey, whatever. I'm married. Once you get married, you, you don't have to worry as much about how you look. It's actually kind of a, a beta posture, honestly. The, the, the true alpha males don't really care how they look. Anyway, I digress already. This week, I am talking with Brom Rector. Brom is a podcaster and a YouTuber and an investor in the psychedelics industry. And what he's doing is really interesting. And the reason I got him on the podcast is specifically because I found him on YouTube and I noticed that basically he was starting a podcast and a YouTube channel at the very same time as he was launching a venture capital fund. And you don't see that very often. So I just thought that was kind of bold and intriguing. And so I looked into him and we started talking a bit. And I'm also of the opinion that psychedelics is going to be absolutely massive in the next several years. And as you know, you might know if you watch my channel and you've been following me for a long time, I'm, I'm quite a fan of, of drugs <laughs> generally. Um, but I think psychedelics in particular are just an extremely promising, uh, you know, industry and and next step in the development of, you know, pharmaceuticals, essentially. It's not like cannabis. It's it's not like a recreational thing. It's really a, a new class of pharmaceuticals. And I think it's going to be massive and awesome. So that's what we talk about. He basically uh, drops a ton of knowledge bombs about the pharmaceutical industry, what's interesting, what's, you know, maybe hyped up but not so interesting. We talk about the current FDA pipeline and the kind of timeline that we're going to expect drugs like MDMA or ketamine to actually become uh, out there, you know, really be approved and, and actually start getting distribution in the population. We talk about unknown compounds that haven't even been discovered yet. That's one of his big theses for his venture capital fund, which is called Empath Ventures. And we talk about uh, microdosing, how he thinks that actually microdosing is overrated and it might be more harmful than people realize. We talk about a serotonin receptor that he thinks is going to be able to possibly improve long-term memory. We talk about applications of LSD for possibly uh, treating ADHD. We talk about how he tracks clinical trials and how you can kind of stay up to date on the research and you know follow interesting developments or interesting opportunities, both from an investment perspective, but also from a kind of biohacking perspective. And yeah, we even talk about virtual reality and how virtual reality is actually on a continuum with psychedelics, which I thought was a really interesting take. I'd never really heard that before. All right, we talk about that and much more. That's basically it. Brom Rector, you can check out his VC fund called Empath Ventures, and you check out his podcast called The Integration Conversation. I'll put links to all of his work in the show notes. And thanks for listening. Thanks for hanging out, as always. And let's get on to the show. All right, so Brom, I first found out about you on YouTube. You were just recommended in my algorithm. And I noticed that you were doing a YouTube channel and a podcast. You call it the integration conversation, and it's about investing in psychedelics. And the reason this struck my interest is not necessarily because I'm personally investing in psychedelics, but because I noticed about a few weeks later, you were also launching a VC fund in the psychedelics industry. And I was just very struck and impressed by how close these two projects were were in time because your audience was not yet built up, 
you know, to really huge numbers or anything like that. Clearly the podcast had just started and to launch a VC fund so quickly was just kind of impressive to me. And, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it picked my curiosity because clearly you're doing a, a, an interesting kind of play where you're launching the podcast and the VC fund at the same time. And that's just kind of bold. And you don't, you don't see that too often. Usually people either build up a podcast for many years and then they start investing with that clout that they've built up, or they've been investing for a while and they use that clout they have as an investor to launch the podcast. And you're bootstrapping these two things pretty much at the same time. And I just thought that was really badass and interesting. And so that's what made me hit you up. And I wanted to learn more about your operations, but also about your interesting takes in psychedelics and on the psychedelics industry. So if you would, for my audience, just let's start from the top and work us through like how you got to where you are now. What was the idea behind this kind of uh, media first investing strategy, or maybe you would consider it, uh, you know, investing first media strategy. Just walk us through how this started and how you kind of thought about that game plan. Yeah. So, I mean, my interest in psychedelics goes back almost 10 years. Um, and my interest in sort of mental health stuff goes back even longer than that. So I was raised in a military family. And uh, as many people know, you know, military families get a very close up look at like PTSD and some of the mental health struggles that uh, soldiers specifically deal with. And uh, when my dad, who was the guy, you know, the guy in the military, when he got to uh, the later end of his career, he started a nonprofit that worked with uh, veterans that were dealing with uh, both physical disabilities and also, you know, mental issues that they got from um service in combat zones. And I worked at that nonprofit as a teenager. So I like saw a very up close look at like the challenges of mental health. And it's always been something that's kind of been in the back of my mind. And, you know, when you see people struggle the way that some of these guys did, it sticks with you, you know, um, it's very different from the, uh, sort of garden variety. Oh, I'm depressed. I'm like anxious type stuff. You know, we're talking people that like literally can't get out of bed and oftentimes end up killing themselves. It's like some real shit. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so that was sort of my like exposure to mental health. And then I first sort of got turned on to psychedelics um, in my late teenage years when uh, one of my cousins who had like a pretty rough childhood, she sort of shared this story about how she did um, sort of like underground MDMA therapy to help get over some PTSD. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of psychedelics, which I think is a bit different from where most people first hear about them. Oftentimes people's first exposure to psychedelics is like at a college party or, you know, sort of like a for fun thing. But I was first turned on to them as like this mental health sort of like healing mechanism thing, which is a bit different. Mm -hmm. um, so fast forward a little bit. I had a career in finance. I worked at a couple different hedge funds. Most recently, I was at a company in LA called Crable Capital Management, and I was a quant researcher, portfolio manager there. So it's not like I'm brand new to investing or anything. Right. So um, I certainly don't have some long history doing investing in psychedelics, but I was a professional investor. I am a CFA charter holder. I've kind of been in the finance game for most of my career. Um, but like many people in sort of the finance space do, they, they kind of get burnt out, you know, um, like I was telling you when we were having drinks the other day, like when you're doing this active trading stuff, when you're doing speculation on stocks and derivatives, it's like, you're making money for yourself. You're making money for your clients and there's nothing wrong with that. But I kind of wanted to do something that had, you know, a bit more of an impact and on like the world in a way, you know? And, um, so I figured that, you know, venture capital investing, is a little bit more, you're actually like causing things to happen. When you write a check as a venture capital investor, you're actually like potentially paying people salaries, you're funding research, you're actually making real things happen rather than just swapping securities around. Right. Um, but yeah, so like I said, I, I was kind of getting burnt out of the hedge fund thing, left in December, and I didn't really know exactly what I was gonna do. Um, 
psychedelics was something that I was interested in, but I wasn't like sure that I was going to start a psychedelics podcast or anything like that. My idea was that I was going to start a podcast that was about just different shit that I was interested in. And I hoped that by going through that process of exploring things and then putting out my research into a podcast, I would somehow find what I was going to do next in my career. And uh, one of those topics was psychedelics. Uh, over the course of 2020, the psychedelics industry sort of started to exist. Pri you know, in 2019 and 2018, you couldn't really say the word psychedelics industry. Like that wasn't really a thing. There were just psychedelics. Um, but we started seeing at the beginning of 2020, some publicly traded companies pop up, Mind Medicine, Numinous, Compass Pathways, that were actually doing legitimate, you know, above board research on psychedelics. And I had been sort of following this while I was working at the hedge fund. Um, and once I left the hedge fund, I all of a sudden had all this free time and I just found myself diving deep into psychedelics. Um, but even then, I didn't necessarily know that I was going to do the fund. I just started doing the podcast. The podcast started getting a lot of attention because there are plenty of people online that are talking about psychedelics, plenty of people talking about investing, almost no one talking about psychedelic investing. And that's sort of why I think my podcast, even though it's still sort of small, started getting so much attention because, like I said, if you just if you look up psychedelic investing, there are maybe two or three people talking about this, and I'm I'm one of them. And so it was uh, sort of like a right place, right time thing for you know getting to the top of that like search engine optimization sort of space, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and tell us a little bit about your results so far, and because this is what really impressed me is. Uh, pound for pound, you're yeah. having, you're getting real results from this kind of media slash investing yeah. nexus. So uh, give give my audience just a sense of that. Like how sure. long have you been running? Sure. Sure. What kind of money have you raised so far? That, what are you aiming to do? That kind of thing. Yeah. And th this sort of gets into how I actually decided to start the venture fund. So I recorded the first video on psychedelics March 1st. So not that long ago. Um, and, you know, I started releasing like one episode a week. And pretty quickly, I started getting messages from people that were real investors. I mean, like people that, you know, work in Silicon Valley that do angel investing that have like, you know, real serious cash. And they were writing me messages saying like, hey, I want to start doing some investing on the private side. Are there any companies you recommend? I, I want to invest, you know, like 50 or 100 grand into some company. And I'm like, oh shit, this is like some, there's real demand here. And I must be the only guy talking about it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be reaching out to me. You know what I mean? Right. And at the same time, I started having companies reach out to me, like small startups that you probably haven't heard of yet, saying, hey, we're raising money for this psychedelic research company. You seem to be a guy that knows who's who in the space. Could you potentially connect us with some investors? Yeah. And, I, and so even before I started the fund, I was actually matchmaking angel investors and companies and actually helped fund some company seed rounds just because of the attention that I got from the podcast. Right. And so from there, I'm like, okay, well, how do I get in on this. And, <laughs> yeah. and like the natural evolution is, all right, let's set up a fund. And that's what I decided to do. Of course, you know, my background is not in venture, but it's in the hedge fund world, which is, you know, somewhat similar. And so I was able to, you know, sort of take some of that credibility from the hedge fund world and sort of port it over to the VC thing. Um, and yeah, like I said, I've, you know, just in probably the I'd say maybe six, seven weeks since I've sort of formally announced that I'm doing this venture fund. I've gotten easily over a million dollars in like commitments from investors. The goal is to raise 10 million. And um, I would say probably 80% of that money is from people that found me through the podcast. So it's, it is working. Dude, it's a really yeah. badass example of how if you know what you want to do and you know what you want to focus on and you just go very specific and you're clear about the niche, yeah. you can get really amazing results really quickly with a relatively small audience. Yeah, I think um, like you, you mentioned small audience and that's totally right. I mean, the YouTube channel that I have has, I think, 750 subscribers. So nothing impressive at all by YouTube standards. Um, but 
as long as you're targeting the right people, like you said, then it doesn't really matter what the actual number of subscribers is. It's it's all about like, who are you actually reaching? Right. It's yeah. like if there's a specific brand and it's good content and yeah. you can show that you know what you're doing, then you only need 700 people for you know, some small percentage of those people to be, become investors. And it's just a really, really cool and, and stark example of how how you really can bootstrap this kind of thing in an industry that you're not even necessarily a part of yet. Right. Now you are. But yeah, now I'm a part of it. Yeah. You know, you got, you got to find your door in somehow. And one other thing that's been very interesting is just the breadth and the variance of the different types of people that are listening. So I've had people that are like the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies that are interested in psychedelics reach out. I've had people that are like big, you know, like doctors that are very into psychedelics. I've also had people that are literally like 22 years old that made like millions of dollars on do do dog Dogecoin, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. Millions of dollars on Dogecoin that are like, I want to spread my wealth out into like some new shit. And, you know, I like your videos. So it's like, I think it's an investor group that maybe a more traditional venture fund may not get access to. And I also sort of consider that one of the edges because a lot of these traditional venture funds, they have their networks and these are the people that they go to every time they want to raise capital. And sure, maybe they expand into like the cannabis, um, you know, cannabis LP money, but they're not really like going out there and getting all of this money that's on the sidelines that doesn't really feel connected to the psychedelics industry. Right. But if you have like this, if you have a media platform and you can like, you know, go out there and just reach whoever's interested, then you potentially have access to um, maybe not more capital, but like different capital than like these other people do, which is pretty cool. Totally, so, dude. Yeah. It's so awesome. And so let's just get right into your, you know, what do you, what do you know about psychedelics that other people don't? What is the big bet? Yeah. about the psychedelics industry that you think other people are sleeping on? Geez, well, I mean, it, it totally depends on who you talk to. You know, a lot of people are hip to this stuff. A lot of people are not. Um, psychedelics are becoming more and more mainstream by the minute. Just a couple weeks ago, there was an article in Good Housekeeping magazine, of all places, <laughs> that was talking about the benefits of psychedelics for teen mental Vogue. health. Teen <laughs> Vogue. Yeah, well, Teen Vogue's probably next, I'm <laughs> sure. But, I mean, Good Housekeeping magazine, it's, like, targeted at women over the age of 55 that are, like, primarily in the Midwest. This is, you know, as, <laughs> as mainstream as it gets. They're right? doing a shit ton of LSD Dude, right now. Dude, <laughs> they are. They are. The, the housewives of Milwaukee are, like, It used to be, like, balls. Xanax. Now, now, they're yeah. all, now they're all tripping balls. Well, you know, it's funny because um, it sounds funny when you say it that way, yeah. but um, psychedelics are really going after, at least at this stage in the, in the um, psychedelic revolution, it's a mental health play. And the largest consumers of uh, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications are actually senior citizens. Wow. Yeah. A lot of people just sort of think that because like young people and college students are the ones that are always on Instagram talking about mental health, you would maybe assume it's that group of people, mm. but it's actually older people and women more so than men. Hmm. So that is actually sort of the prime audience, believe it or not. Um, but yeah, so let's get back to like what this, what, what is the psychedelic industry? Like what exactly is it? So, um, there is, you know, plen plenty of mental health problems in the world. Um, some of the stats that I've dug up are one in five people are currently diagnosed with some sort of mental illness at any given point. This is Americans in the U.S., by the way. One in six people taking some sort of antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication. And over the course of your life, if you're an American adult, there's a 50% chance that at some point you'll be diagnosed with some sort of mental illness, whether we're talking depression or something as serious as schizophrenia, right? So um, this is something that does affect everyone. And the fact is, is that the current treatments that we have for this stuff, not so hot. So for depression, we have SSRIs, which about one in three people don't respond to at all. So one in three people get no benefit from SSRIs. And the people that do respond positively to them, um, it maybe helps 
stop stopping them from being depressed, but they have negative side effects, you know, weight gain, sexual dysfunction, all sorts of terrible side effects. Um, and, you know, the anti-anxiety medications like benzodiazepines can be abused. People get addicted to them. You can OD on things like Xanax. It happens, right? Totally. Um, and so it's like, these are the best treatments that we have. And they suck. And they're <laughs> not that great. But e even though they're so bad, um, in America, we spend $280 billion a year on mental health and substance abuse treatment. And a lot of it is on treatments that are just not that effective or cause you to gain weight or have sexual dysfunction. So it's like, there's gotta be a better way. And um, there's a substantial body of evidence that suggests that psychedelics are better at treating a lot of these mental health disorders than um, you know the classic, S classic SSRIs and benzos with um, fewer side effects. And also in many cases, in a more curative way instead of a palliative way. So like with SSRIs, you have to take your SSRI, your, you have to take your Lexapro every day, kind of indefinitely. Whereas the studies around psychedelics show that one large dose of psilocybin can stop your depression for, you know, six, nine, 12 months sometimes, and could be longer, just the studies haven't actually tracked people <laughs> for that long. Right. Um, and so this is a thing that I think can potentially change lots of people's lives, is certainly a threat to the people that are making money selling SSRIs. Um, and you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. We can get into the next gen psychedelics. We can get into all this stuff about like how we're actually going to deliver these therapies to patients. But um, yeah, it's, it's a very exciting space. And I don't know that people realize the amount of progress that's been made on the uh, clinical research front. So right now there's a phase three clinical trial of MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder that will likely be approved in 2023. So PTSD, something that is famously difficult to treat. The study that MAPS did with MDMA shows about a five times of uh, 5x improvement in remission rates compared to like just therapy versus MDMA plus therapy. So yeah, big mental health revolution stuff. Right. So yeah. basically massive problem, massive market. Yeah. Now increasing evidence that this stuff works. Yep. And so it just seems like a good place to be from an investor perspective. Yeah. And just, you know, 18 months ago, there was like no psychedelics industry. Like I said, now there's about a $10 billion market cap of psychedelics companies. Mm -hmm. And even that is still very small, right? Because we're talking about an industry that spends $280 billion a year treating mental health. So uh, I think there's a lot of room for growth as psychedelics start to reroute more and more of that $280 billion a year spent on awesome. mental health treatment. So yeah, big investment opportunity. And honestly, an not investment opportunity, not, not, financial financial, not financial advice, but it's one of those things <laughs> but that- um, but actually, yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I think if you're someone that has cash to spare, you would be kind of silly to sleep on this because this is one of those big global macro trades that is- not going to really be an option 20 years from now, right? Like psychedelics will become approved by the FDA. They will become legal. And that's not an opportunity you're going to get again, right? Awesome. It's so a, it's a one-time trade. So yeah. let's talk a little bit more about your specific thesis because your fund, Empath, yeah, I Empath think it's particularly yeah. interested in novel compounds, right? Yeah. So people have heard of MDMA and LSD and psilocybin yeah. and ketamine and, 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 and this class of known psychedelic compounds, but you think the the real upside is in things that we haven't even discovered yet. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So one of the, th if you read like the empath ventures fund memo, one of the statements in there is like the most popular psychedelic 10 years from now probably hasn't been invented yet. And I think that at first that sort of catches a lot of people by surprise. But, um, the truth is that most of the psychedelics that we're familiar with, like LSD and MDMA, those were created in labs 
by humans, right? A lot of people think of them as just, oh, they've existed forever, but they're not, they're not naturally occurring substances. They were invented. And they were invented back before we had personal computers, back before we understood the things about the brain that we understand today. And it's kind of like saying, you know, LSD was invented in 1943. And it's kind of like saying, yeah, the cars that they invented in 1943, that's still like the best car today, right? It's kind right. of silly. It's implausible. There's yeah. Gotta be. And, and, yeah. and it's not just, this is not, this is not just an argument that's like progress for the sake of progress. There are, as good as the existing psychedelics are, there are some potential downsides to them. So for one, um, they take a long time. Like psilocybin and LSD, you could be tripping for like six to 10 hours. It's heavy. I personally like that. You probably <laughs> like that. But not everyone's got that kind of time, especially imagine you if you have like young kids or something, you're not going to take off the whole day to go trip. And then also, if anyone's actually done psilocybin or LSD, you know, it's not just like the trip is over and you're back to normal, right? It's like you need some time to really kind of like yeah, also, soak in it. Also, right? they taste like shit. You're, they <laughs> taste don't, like don't shit. Don't they grow yeah. on like cow, cow dung? <laughs> <laughs> I think you can wash off the cow dung. But yes, right, yeah, right. They, they, the uh, consumption is not necessarily ideal. I think we could do better as an industry. We, we, yeah. we could do we can do better. Yeah. So they take a long time. The hallucinogenic effects um, may be a little bit too much for some people. Like not everyone wants to go to hyperspace. I like go, <laughs> I like going to hyperspace, but I think a lot of people are very scared. My mom, for example, she's she's a very open minded woman, very adventurous. Um, but, and she's like really interested in psychedelics, but she doesn't want to like lose touch with reality. Right. And so for a lot of people, I think there is this interest in like, can we create a psychedelic that either has reduced hallucinogenic effects or even no hallucinogenic effects that still provides the same therapeutic benefit. Mm. And so there are companies that are already doing research on this stuff. Um, and there will be more companies doing research on this stuff in the future. There are also some safety issues. So um, most people think of psychedelics as perfectly safe. And I will say that relative to things like cocaine and heroin, they're absolutely like much safer. And yes, people are not like dying by the dozens because of psychedelic overdoses, but um, psychedelics mainly work by agonizing a serotonin receptor that's called the 5-HT2A receptor. Um, but psilocybin in particular also agonizes another serotonin receptor called the 5-HT2B receptor. It turns out that there are multiple 5-HT2B receptor sites on your heart valves. And so when you, if you take psilocybin repeatedly, there's serious concern that like you might have some heart issues because of taking psilocybin. And so when you look at the studies that the FDA has approved on psilocybin, they sort of have two requirements. One is that you can only do up to three doses in a trial. They won't let you do more than three because they're sort of concerned that maybe we'll give some people like heart disease that won't be detectable for a long time, right? Um, and then another thing that the FDA says is that if you have a pre-existing heart condition, uh, you can't be a part of this study because we don't want to trigger something that you're already prone to. So can you create a psychedelic that agonizes just that 5-HT2A agonist without touching the 5-HT2B? That's another big question. There are companies working on it. Um, and that's the sort of thing that, um, you know, I think most people, even people that are really into psychedelics, don't really know, right? That's kind of like a interesting, like, you know, rabbit hole that you really have to sort of dig through the research to find. Right, yeah. yeah. And then th there are also concerns about... Um, just the mental health aspects. So there, there, are, there are serious concerns about, um, you know, psychedelics make a lot of people better, but they can make some people worse. Like if you have schizophrenic tendencies, um, there is serious concern that um, you could actually trigger like a schizophrenic break or full on schizophrenia from dealing with psychedelics. So, you know, Eric Weinstein may not be allowed to like participate in one of these trials, right? Like, so it might, it might, <laughs> it might cause like, um, you know, he might, his, his uh, conspiratorial thinking might get even worse if he does a bunch of acid. So um, yeah, serious concerns about all of that. And there are plenty of companies doing research to, you know, uncover what's going to be the next gen psychedelic, what's going to be the hottest one. And I think that, 
it's not necessarily just about finding like the optimal psychedelic, right? Because everyone's body is different. And we know that this is the case, even when you're just talking about something as basic as diet, right? Like people respond to carbs differently. Um, but the brain is even like more complicated than just like, you know, your digestive system and your muscle building system. So there are like tons of different circuits that process serotonin and ketamine and these things. And uh, there are companies out there that are working on genetic tests. You do a little cheek swab, they take your DNA, they look through it and they can actually tell you like, you're going to be more sensitive to serotonin than the average person. You're going to be more sensitive to ketamine than the average person. Let's create an optimal blend and an optimal dosing of different psychedelics that we know to give you a better experience. Interesting. Okay. And yeah, I think long-term you might see it go even beyond that and say, based on your DNA, here's like a little custom molecule that we just 3D printed, like perfectly optimized for you, right? Wow. Obviously that's like way down the road, but yeah, the wow. point is, is that um, eating the mushrooms, that's one thing, but like, you know, 20 years from now, who knows what kind of crazy shit. Right. It's obviously this primitive blunt uh, way to do it that yeah. has a lot of downsides. And it's just, it is pretty obvious when you start breaking it down in the way that you are, it's obvious there's going to be all these different dimensions of a vast improvement, right? Yeah. And just to be clear, I'm not against anyone just like eating mushrooms and having <laughs> fun. Like go for it. I've fucking done it many times. I think people should do that if they want to. But if you're actually trying to talk about creating an industry that is accessible to like the average person, right? There's like so much room for optimization. And okay. So this is yeah. great. So what other kind of free alpha can you give us? Like so those, alpha, those are yeah. some really good examples yeah. of specific yeah. innovations you expect to see. But yeah. when you think about are there specific novel compounds that you're you're bullish on that may, so, maybe you could blow our minds with? Or yeah, not necessarily specific novel compounds, but I can give you a little bit more detail on some of this stuff. So I mentioned that psychedelics generally function by agonizing the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor. There are I forget the exact number, something like 20 different serotonin receptors in our brains that we know of. There could be more. Um, and you're saying all the psychedelics focus on that one? Pretty pretty much. They 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 focus on some other ones too, but I would like LSD, psilocybin. Um, they generally hit that 5-HT2A receptor. Yeah. Um, the, to be honest, like the, the exact mechanism of action of even things like psilocybin is not entirely understood. Like we have a good idea, but the brain is really fucking complicated. Mm -hmm. So it's tough to say, but, um, if you just go to Wikipedia right now and you find the page that lists all the serotonin receptors, you will see that we've done studies on a lot of them, but there are a couple that we haven't really done that many studies on. We don't necessarily know how to create a chemical that agonizes those receptors. And if you just think like, dude, well, what about these other receptors? Like, what do they do? There's been some research that suggests that agonizing the 5-HT7 receptor can help form long-term memories, which is very interesting. If you imagine like trying to learn something better, if you imagine maybe treating ADD, something like that. Um, these are things that is up until now, there hasn't been a lot of funding for this research. People are just not that interested in it. Um, you know, pharma companies for the last couple of decades have been really focused on cancer because the brain was like kind of too hard to crack. And so we've sort of been in this like um, sort of like quiet period of brain drug research. And I personally, I don't really see, I think I said this too when we we're having drinks, but like psychedelics is almost like too narrow of a term. And I think really, I just see psychedelics as like this big marker that's saying we're at the start of this new era of doing serious pharmaceutical research on manipulating the brain to our liking or to our advantage. And so right. I think that some of these drugs that we're now talking about, like in terms of psychedelics, they may not really even be recognizable in the way that we think of psychedelics today, right? They're just maybe going to be different brain drugs that work in ways that uh, we're not really used to. Right. And they also seem to all have in common that, that they operate on our sense of of meaningfulness in life, right? Isn't isn't that kind of what makes them a little strange or unique? 
is that is that a is that a defining characteristic of 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 psychedelics as opposed to other forms of medicine that that the, that they're specifically operating on on the the biochemistry of what we find to be meaningful and significant? Yeah, well, they certainly seem to generally give us like feelings of empathy, which is where I got the name for empath ventures, by the way. Um, they give us these strange mystical experiences that are very hard to describe and even put into words. Um, and there's this term that I've been hearing a lot. Uh, it's experiential medicine, which is rather than, you know, taking a pill that does something for you, but that you can't really feel the effects. And it's something that you take every single day. It's this idea that you have this experience that sort of reorients your view on life, whether it's through a spiritual sense or whether it's just through some weird like brain massage sense. And afterwards, you're left with like this after effect that lasts for, you know, weeks or months and really sort of like resets you. Um, and, a, and a really big question that a couple of companies are trying to answer is, do we even have to limit this experiential medicine category to just drugs? Like, is there a way to get these same states through technology like virtual reality? And um, here's another thing that might blow some people's minds. There's actually a company that has a phase three trial right now of virtual reality for pain relief. Really? Yeah. So they've actually demonstrated, they, they passed phase two showing that this actually works. And now they're going through phase three, which is where you actually prove that it's better than the competition. But I think the company is called Applied VR based down in uh, Venice, California. Um, and yeah, it's literally like you put on the VR goggles. There's a bunch of stuff that happens in there, guided meditation, different like visualization techniques. And they're actually showing in a FDA regulated clinical trial that people get can get rid of like chronic pain from doing this, which if you think about one of the biggest problems in the US, it's like the opioid epidemic, right? Like why are people hooked on opioids? Because they're in pain. And right now the only two things we can give you for pain is like um, aspirin, which like doesn't do that much if you have serious pain or opioids, which like you get hooked on and then like your life's fucked up, right? So that's like a huge um, area of promise. Virtual reality, um, experiential medicine using virtual reality is showing great promise in that. And I think that psychedelics may um, show some promise in that. Right now, most of the like phase one research um, or maybe the the first wave of psychedelic research has been focused on depression, anxiety, the classic mental health disorders. But we're starting to see studies pop up where we study psychedelics for pain relief. Um, there's a big connection between the mind and the gut. Um, there's a lot of speculation that things like IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, could actually be mental health disorders and that psychedelic mm -hmm. could potentially cure that. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating, man. So who knows what sort of diseases we may be able to treat using psychedelics or psychedelic-like compounds. Yeah, the idea that virtual reality is on a continuum with psychedelics is, is kind of mind-blowing yeah. because it, it really goes to show how the very word psychedelics is, is kind of misleading and, yeah. and overly narrow, as you alluded to before. It's like it, this is pointing to something way, way bigger. It seems uh, the, psych the word psychedelics, most people just it has bad connotations, right? It's right. like it's like what druggies do. Yeah, you know, it's, it's Burning like, Man. Yeah, it's Burning Man. Um, whereas actually, the, this is just like a portal to like a whole new uh, dimension of yeah. of mental health treatments, basically. So that's that's absolutely fascinating. And then you start make you make me start thinking about how VR is going to connect up with like gaming, and then yeah. gaming's already connecting up with like crypto. So like in ten years. You're, to cure your depression, you're going to be joining like a yield farming guild <laughs> hooked up to like a VR headset, uh, like mining NFTs and being like uh, jacked into like an antidepressive uh, like game module that's also making you like yield farm. 
Dude, it's certainly it's certainly <laughs> possible. I mean, and I think that when you talk about like psychedelics and VR, it's um, a lot of people don't really get it. They're like, what is, do I just put on a headset and I see like some weird like trippy visuals or something? No, dude. And, right. Unless you've experienced some of this shit, it's hard to describe. But I actually, there's a video on my channel. You'll, you'll It's called Brom Tries Psychedelic VR. Uh, there's this company, Entheo Digital. I'm not affiliated with them in any way. They're not paying me to say this. Um, but it just so happened that the guy who's like behind this company lives in LA. So I got to go try it out. And it is like a full body immersive VR thing. So you lay on a table. It looks like a massage table. It has four high powered subwoofers in the table. So you're laying on this table, they put headphones on, and then they put on these glasses and they're not VR goggles in the traditional sense. They don't have a screen. What they have are they have these really bright LEDs and the LEDs, you keep your eyes closed and the LEDs shine these weird patterns Whoa. and they, they go through your eyelid and just sort of like project these weird patterns on like, you know, the back of your retina sort of. So imagine like laying on the beach with your wow. eyes closed. You know how like the, um, the sun will sort of like create these weird like color dances. Yeah. So you're, you're laying there, right? And then there's a guided meditation and the woman who's in the guided meditation is saying like, all right, I want you to do like an ohm. She's like, and so you're like, ohm, right? There's a microphone that picks up your ohm and it plays it back to you and with like all these weird effects on it. And the louder that you ohm, the, the more powerfully the subwoofers that are in the bed vibrate. And so it's like your, your voice, your focus starts like controlling your physical environment. Like the louder you ohm, the more the bed vibrates. And I'll tell you what, man, I've, I've certainly had my fair share of psychedelic experiences. After two minutes of that shit, I had to take it off because it was so intense. I, I felt more on drugs during that thing than Whoa. I have on like low doses of psilocybin. It's really? fucking insane. Yeah. Really? And okay. It, and it honestly wasn't until I had that experience that I really bought into the psychedelic VR thing. Cause before I was like, I have an Oculus. I've played the games and like, they're fun, but it, this yeah. is not anything close to, to drugs. Right. But trying this thing out, I was like, oh shit, this, this is actually a full on altered state that I'm in. And I didn't take any drugs. Wow. Um, and so you can imagine like a couple of different uses for this one. Maybe oh and by the way the, the guys behind this they claim anyway I haven't like looked at the re the data but they claim that they've done um what is it EEG where they have the little the brain wire things yeah. yeah yeah so they claim that they've done that and recorded people in it and then they've also done um, people that are under the influence of psilocybin and they say that the types of brain waves that are produced during this VR experience are very similar to the types of brain waves that are produced during the psychedelic experience. So they're oh, actually really? rep replicating okay, so some of those same brain patterns. Interesting. So there's some yeah. evidence uh, of the consistency there. And yeah. And so there's, yeah. sorry. So they're, no, they're no. sort of, they're suggesting a couple of different use cases for this. Okay. Um, and I think this applies to psychedelic VR in general, but one, you can use this to train the therapists that are assisting people with psychedelic therapy. So most of the psychedelic therapy that's going through the FDA right now, it's not just they're giving you psychedelics to do at home. It's like you do it in an office with someone there um, guiding you through the experience. And so if you wanna train these guides or these psychedelic therapists, you either need a ton of people that are on drugs or people that are able to simulate an altered state so that you can help them. It can also potentially be useful for people that are curious about psychedelics, but are kind of afraid to go into an altered state. So like maybe my mom, if she tried this virtual reality thing, she would get comfortable with the idea of being in an altered state. And then she would be more willing to try psychedelics, right? Interesting. Yeah. And so what was the altered state like for you? Like, what did it feel like? Was it akin to something like LSD or what? Yeah, I, I would say, so I think uh, the guy that is behind it, I think he was trying to blow my mind and he like set it to 10. <laughs> he set it to like the highest setting, like immediately. <laughs> he didn't really give me much of a warm up, but um. It was, dude, it, it was like being in the thick of like an acid trip, to be honest. Wow. Like, I mean, I'm seeing these crazy colors. I'm hearing my own voice 
in a way that it doesn't actually sound because it's being like digitally altered. And my body is fucking vibrating. And like, I don't know, like if you do a high dose of psychedelics, that vibration is real. Like everything around you kind of vibrates. That's why hippies are always talking about good vibes and stuff, right? Because they did so much acid that they're just like used to that vibration. Right. Well, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It is fast. That's that's very fascinating because <laughs> I definitely would, did not have the right mental image of of, of psychedelic VR. Yeah. I, I was basically thinking of a corny like Oculus headset, right? Making you play some stupid like video game that's like meditative or something. Yeah. But no, this is like uh, basically you're you're jacked in and you're you're being physically uh, you're having your senses manipulated in a systematic way to bring you into a psychedelic state, basically. Yeah, and it also kind of one of the things that people describe when they're doing psychedelics is this feeling of synesthesia, which is sort of like where you see colors and you know you hear like, I don't know, whatever, just all the senses sort of blend together. And I sort of felt like I was having that synesthesia while in this thing, because I'm like, the vibrations on the bed are matching the, the uh, speed and frequency of the vibrations in the lights, which are also the same as like what's happening in the, head, in the headset. So it was just all together, you know, I don't know that it replaced psychedelics. Like, would I would I give up mushrooms for this? I don't know. But I can see it having an interesting future. I can also see it being like you do the shrooms once, but you're sort of concerned about what like you know continuous shroom uses do- right. usage does. So maybe just going to doing the virtual reality after that can sort of bring you back to that place Dude, without I'm, having to do the drugs. I'm you know telling what you, I mean? so- someone's got to connect this to yield farming. Okay, <laughs> connect this to like Axies Infinity. If you want to build that company, come to me. I'll I'll invest. <laughs> we'll fund it. Uh, I'll, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll do a syndicate round. That's fascinating. So what yeah. about uh, what about some other things? What about some people think that LSD will be a treatment for ADHD? Do you find that convincing? What what kind of probability yeah, so, would you put on that? So for ADHD specifically, I think ADHD is a very interesting nut to crack. Um, I, I don't know. I'm certainly not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, so I'm kind of talking out of my ass here. But I think that like what we think of as ADHD is probably a blanket term for like many different things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people that have ADHD are just like stuck in jobs that they don't like, but have convinced themselves they need to do for the approval of others, but it's hard mm-hmm. for them to really like get in the zone, right? There are genuinely people that do have real ADHD. I've met them <laughs> and it's like, so the, the spectrum of ADHD is large, right? Um, and one of the interesting things I'll say about this LS, LSD for ADHD is that most people talk about microdosing as a cure for ADHD. They're like, yeah, you take a tiny bit of acid or a tiny bit of mushrooms or something else every single day. It's supposed to be subperceptual. So you're not actually tripping, but supposedly like something's going on and it's, you know, keeping you kind of like focused. Now, first of all, th- this sort of opens up the door to a conversation about microdosing in general, which I think that my take is a little bit different than the average psychedelic enthusiast take, which is that, um, the data suggests that microdosing is maybe not as effective as some people would like it to believe. The data around macrodosing, the large doses, you know, one, two, three large doses of psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, all that data is like very strong. All the studies kind of agree with each other that it's super effective. The studies around microdosing, super mixed. Um, some of the studies suggest that it actually makes people worse at tasks that they think it's making them better at. <laughs> um, and I think you also got to ask the question, um, you know, psychedelics are drugs that stimulate your serotonin system. And if you're stimulating your serotonin system on a regular basis, eventually your body is probably going to start producing less of its own serotonin. And that could cause some problems. And th- this is not something that's, you know, unique to psychedelics. You hear about guys that inject testosterone or take pro-hormones, right? What's the thing that you always hear? Their balls shrink. And the reason their balls shrink is because their body stops producing its own testosterone. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to wonder in the long run, 
is hammering your serotonin system with the 5-HT2A agonists on a daily basis, even if you take a couple days off in between. I don't know how good that is. Uh, we talked about the risks with the um, the heart valves. I don't know how safe microdosing is in the long term. Mm. And yeah, I'm, I'm very, th this is the kind of thing where we need more studies and we need more data. And um, I'm sure that at some point, someone will actually like, get a more definitive answer. Um, it's certainly possible that some of these novel psychedelic molecules will end up being better for microdosing. But yeah, I, I think we just don't know. All right, coming but, through coming through with the contrarian takes yeah, on well, dude, against people, microdosing. Listen, the the man, psychedelics guy comes in and and pours cold water on my my love for microdosing. Anytime. No, I don't do it that you're, much. <laughs> <laughs> you're, when you're taking a substance that makes you happy, that stimulates your serotonin system, you're going to think it's working for you because it feels good, right? right? I've met people with a straight face that tell me that they microdose cocaine and it works for them, right? <laughs> People always ask me, well, don't, don't tell me, don't tell me about my body, bro. Like you, yeah, I know yeah. my body. It's like, listen, man, you don't know your, this, right. you need longitudinal, you know, you need like big studies that really like track people on a wide, on a wide basis before you can make any definitive claims. And, um, just cause it feels good for now. doesn't mean it's good for you. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So t let's talk a little bit more about the, the current kind of FDA pipeline. You, yeah. it, it sounds like you think it looks like MDMA is going to be the first one to go mainstream with a currently in a, in a stage three trial. What's further down the pipeline that people should be aware of that that maybe they're sleeping on at yeah. stage two or the stage one? Sure, sure. So that's most interesting. Yeah. So like like Justin said, um, Maps has been doing research on MDMA for post traumatic stress disorder for a long time. They have a phase three trial, and all signs suggest that it should be approved in about 2023. If it wasn't for COVID, it's possible it could have been approved already, but COVID you know puts through some wrenches into their plans. Um, and the, uh, keep in mind, we're talking about FDA approval, right? So a lot of times people sort of conflate FDA with like the laws about legality and being able to do this stuff recreationally. They're sort of two different things. So the FDA can approve a drug to be used as a pharmaceutical. That does not mean that you can just walk into a store and buy it, right? You need a doctor's prescription. It's also possible that laws could change in some states, like Oregon has decriminalized the possession of uh, hallucinogenic substances. That does not mean that a doctor can prescribe them to you. So these are two totally separate things. And this is actually happening. a really important point worth pausing yeah. on, right? Because this is one of the things that makes the psychedelic revolution very different, especially from an investment perspective, than the cannabis industry, yeah, right? Yeah. Because so let's let's get back to the cannabis thing in a, in a bit. Okay, but, yeah. um, but just pointing out that yes. this is one of the big variables because cannabis, the cannabis revolution was basically a wave of, of decriminalization and legalization, yes. which allowed a bunch of people to do it. Right. But what psychedelics were talking about, um, medicinal uh, uh, pathways, where this is going to become prescription. So whether it's legal or not, for recreational use is actually kind of beside the point. This stuff is going to become medicine. And so there's going to be big pharmaceutical plays, essentially, yeah, unlike with yeah, cannabis. Yeah, I think that's a good point to make. And there are some other differences between psychedelics and cannabis that we can get into. But um, you're totally right. It, it is an important distinction. So the timelines, yeah, 2023 for MDMA for PTSD. Um, and then ar around 2024, 2025, I think that's when we're going to see psilocybin, the active ingredient in uh, mushrooms. That is going to be approved for major depressive disorder and also treatment-resistant depression. So there are two uh, phase 2B trials right now, one of them um, being done by a company called Compass Pathways, which Peter Thiel is sort of famously involved in, and another one done, being done by a nonprofit called the Usona Institute. So MDMA and then psilocybin for some depression. And then, you know, 
looking out, you know, further than four years is always a little bit tough, but that's when we maybe start seeing like some microdosing trials get approved. If it turns out that microdosing is actually useful, that's when maybe we see some LSD get approved. That's when maybe we see some of these novel psychedelic molecules starting to get approved. But one of the interesting things that might happen is that there's this thing in the U.S. called like off-label prescribing. So let's say the FDA approves MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. All that means is that doctors, all that really means is that the company that produces the MDMA is only allowed to advertise it as a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. That doesn't stop a doctor right. from prescribing it for something else, right? right? So MAPS will only be able to market the treatment for PTSD, but a doctor can say, hey, you know, you're depressed. Why don't you try some of this MDMA? You know, even though they, the, the patient doesn't have PTSD. This, by the way, is exactly what we're seeing with ketamine right now. So as many people are aware, there are legal ketamine clinics that are popping up all over the US. Ketamine, um, now this is a little bit different, but for the for most of history, ketamine has not been approved for any mental health conditions. Ketamine is a anesthetic. It's used for like emergency surgeries and veterinary surgeries. It has like real medical use. Um, but because doctors are allowed to do off-label prescription, these doctors are allowed to set up these ketamine clinics and say, hey, you got depression, come in, I'll like shoot you up with some ketamine and you'll feel a lot, you'll feel a lot better, trust me. And by the way, the data does suggest that ketamine is a good antidepressant. Um, so I think that what we might see is that even though these substances only get approved for a specific, you know, indication, there will be many clinics popping up that are just kind of sort of, they're, they're going to sort of be like what we saw in California when we only had medical weed, where doctors would have like a whole list of problems and they would just allow you to pick one and then they would prescribe, you know, weed to you. When, when I first moved to California, um, you couldn't buy weed recreationally. And I, I paid, you know, some money for this to this doctor who uh, told me that I had trouble falling asleep and he was able to prescribe, you know, marijuana for that purpose, even though it's never been like approved for that purpose, right? right? So we're going to see a lot of off-label prescription. And um, at the same time, so that that's the FDA pipeline. That's the uh, that's the regulatory route. At the same time, the laws, the legislative pathways are sort of changing. So we saw in uh, the 20, 2020 election, Oregon passed Measure 110, which decriminalized all most drugs in Oregon. And they also passed Oregon Measure 109, which was a law that said that therapists are allowed to use psychedelic mushrooms in the course of their therapeutic practice. And they said that therapists can do this whether or not the FDA approves it. So like Oregon basically said, we've looked at the studies. We don't really give a shit what the FDA says. We're just gonna allow therapists to start using this as part of their medical practice. And that's kind of a big deal. Like, I don't think we've ever really seen, you know, like. Peep citizens getting excited about something, getting it on the ballot and saying like, fuck the FDA, we're just gonna allow doctors to start using this stuff. It's a right. very, very interesting thing that just has, I don't think has really happened before. So um, we may see other municipalities, other states sort of like go that route and bypass the FDA entirely. So actually from an investment perspective, this is kind of a doubly good thing because basically what it suggests to me is that the po the political risk here is actually low. Like if, if, you're, if you're betting on psychedelics as an industry, it doesn't really seem like there's uh, a serious way or serious threat uh, whereby this would not be big soon, right? It's like, yeah, um, like with some things, like with crypto, there's still like a lot of people still have like political, you know, sense of a lot of political risk. Like maybe right. this stuff could possibly be regulated out of existence. I don't think that, but some people plausibly make that argument. It seems like with the current state of psychedelics, it's like um, it looks like this stuff is going to be approved as medicine, 
And even if it's not federally, yeah, you could still have rogue states that basically push this stuff through because the demand is so high. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of like b- between the regulatory and the legislative actions, it's hard to imagine us sort of like going back in time. You know, right. we're sort of at this place where so much progress has been made. It's hard to imagine it just like, you know, us losing ground. Um, and, and, and the thing that makes it a really interesting investment opportunity is that we're at this place. Um, but because things still take a long time to happen, it, it's still ha- the moment hasn't actually come yet. And so there's still time to get involved as an investor. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that one of the things that people often think with psychedelics is that, oh, well, if a state like legalizes them, then, you know, people will just go and grow their own mushrooms or buy mushrooms at a dispensary. And then like, how are you going to make any money if people can just like go and buy them? And I think that's kind of missing the big picture. Like even if psychedelics were, you know, approved by the FDA today or made, you know, legal today, there's still so many businesses that can be built around psychedelics um, that will allow them to be accessible to, you know, like the mainstream, for example. Like most people are not going to grow their own mushrooms. Most people are not going to go to some gray market decriminalized drug dealer. Most people want like consumer brands that they trust. Most people want to do, so they don't want to just buy some random mushrooms, right? They want like they want a, the Budweiser of mushrooms or whatever. Um, maybe that wasn't the best analogy, but they, they want like the trusted brand. <laughs> they want to do them in a safe environment under the care of like a psychiatrist that actually understands how to work with these things. And all of those are, you know, opportunities for businesses right. to pop up. And yeah. so this, I think, is the other half of your big thesis behind Empath Ventures, right? It's the, it's the picks and shovels, right? Yeah, so, the, 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 yes. The so pick. what are some of the most interesting or surprising uh, plays there, you think? Like what 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 is going to be built on top of this new world of psychedelics that people might not realize is going to be massive? Yeah, so I think like the big one is what I sort of just mentioned, which is that unlike cannabis, where if you want to get the medical benefits of cannabis, you just have to smoke the joint. Like there's not much more to it. If you want to get the medical benefits of psychedelics, you need to do it under the care of like a trained, it doesn't have necessarily have to be a psychiatrist, but a trained guide, someone that knows how to work with this. And this you is what the studies show, right? Dude, that- the studies do show it. Yeah. So it maps, I think one of their MDMA studies showed that it was like, um, psychedelics plus therapy is like number one therapy alone is number two. And then like psychedelics alone is number three in terms of efficacy. So you actually want the psychedelics plus the therapy. If you're actually trying to like treat some issue, right? If you're trying to have fun, Hey, you know, just do the psychedelics by yourself. <laughs> but um, yeah, so the studies show that it's important. And even if the studies didn't show it's important, I think psych- people are much more hesitant to try psychedelics than cannabis, for example. So people want that supervision. Um, you also need to do it in a room that is like designed for safe consumption of psychedelics, right? Like you want to be in a place that is like quiet, where you can like feel free to process whatever emotions you want. Um and without being bothered by like the cops or the neighbors who are annoyed at you for like, you know, whatever. You, you need to have like a nice trip room. This is why you're seeing companies like uh, Field Trip Health pop popping up, creating these beautifully designed trip rooms. There's, they have like 11 locations in the U.S. And uh, they're amazing looking. You should Google Field Trip Health. It's like a tourist, like you, you go there as a resort or what is it? It's not a resort. It's like a walk-in clinic. And right now they're just doing ketamine, but they are going to be offering psilocybin once it becomes like illegal. But yeah, it's like they're like these luxury trip rooms that they have mm. set up that you, you know, you spend like six hours in it. Then you meet with a therapist afterwards, you talk through some things, then you go home and like people are paying thousands of dollars for these experiences right now. This is not like in the future. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. So just like we were seeing an interesting convergence before between VR and psychedelics and maybe gaming and who knows, right? It's like here, there's an interesting convergence between kind of the medical spaces like clinics yeah. that are going to become more and more like wellness spas mm-hmm. in a way, right? So it's like 
is, is this what we're seeing? Like medicinal um, uh, venues are going to become kind of like Instagram attractions. And so it's yeah. Like- so some of those, like the um, field trip health, they are very Instagrammable. I would say that. Um, I think there's also, and, and as cool as that stuff is, it's hard to imagine that we're going to build enough places like that to serve, you know, the hundreds of millions of people that live in the U.S., right? So there's also going to be a big business in getting doctors or therapists that run their own practices that are probably have patients coming to them saying, hey, I'm interested in psychedelics. And the therapist is like, I don't really know shit about this. I need someone to sort of like help me. Um, so there's going to be like a big opportunity in allowing people that already have a practice, already have a client list to like offer that psychedelic therapy to them. Um, and we, we saw similar businesses models like that in the hormone replacement therapy space. Like lots of doctors had men in their you know late 30s saying, hey, I want to try TRT. The doctor said, I don't know anything about that. But of course, they don't want to refer them to someone else, right? They want to keep the patient. So if you can create a business that is sort of like a white label hormone replacement clinic or a white label psychedelic clinic and offer that to doctors that already run their own practice, that's like a big business model. Um, so that, that, that's um, sort of the, the level one of the, uh, the picks and shovels is the actual end user delivery systems. But um, there's, there are even big questions around manufacturing. Like, can we produce enough psychedelic medicine to tr- meet demand? Like for the most of history, we have manufactured psychedelics in like drug dealers' bathtubs, right? Like we haven't had like a big legal psychedelic industry. And so there are big questions on how, how we manufacture them. There are some people that are trying to create huge warehouses full of mushrooms that are like being grown. I don't know how sustainable that is. There are some people that are doing pure chemical synthesis of these compounds. Some of that stuff is expensive. It can create a lot of waste. Um, I I saw a company the other day that used, uh, I think they used CRISPR to genetically modify brewer's yeast so that the brewer's yeast actually contains psilocybin. And as it naturally multiplied, you then had like a harvestable source of psilocybin. Wow. Could you make beer that has it? You probably could. And I think that's probably coming at some point. So (laughs) so yeah. Everyone at the bars is going to be like tripping now. (laughs) All sorts of different manufacturing methods. And then delivery methods are a big question too. So I talked earlier about how one of the big benefits of novel molecules is potentially that they don't last as long, right? Because like people are busy. Um, It's going to take a while before these novel molecules exist. In the meantime, there are some potentially interesting delivery methods of existing molecules that we can use to shorten the trip time. So right now, if you just eat mushrooms, it takes like 60 minutes to kick in. Um, If you have a vapable version of psilocybin, or if you have a transdermal version of psilocybin that can get the psilocin directly into your bloodstream, that could potentially cut off that initial, you know, 60 minute waiting period. Mm. Um, And you could also potentially, part of the reason that psilocybin, you know, yeah, it, it, it could also potentially make the trip last shorter too uh, on the tail end. So there are companies working on those things that I just described, vapes, transdermal, um, just different delivery methods. Right. So when yeah. you evaluate the industry as a whole and the different companies that are now coming to you and wanting wanting you, wanting you to invest, I'm, I'm curious, like, what are the big pitfalls or are there, you know, really popular misconceptions maybe that you want to debunk or you know, pipe dreams that are well known, but you think you're totally bearish on that you want to, you know, totally, uh, you know, dunk on yeah, in the well, podcast. One of the biggest dunks and is that um, I see a lot of companies that are sort of embracing the like hippie wellness, sort of like spirituality angle of psychedelics. And to me, that's sort of like a dangerously wrong mm. road to go down. I don't have a problem with people like figuring out their own, you know, spiritual practices and all that. But as far as I can tell, psychedelics are just chemicals that interact with our brains and maybe we don't understand exactly how they work. 
but they're not allowing us to communicate with aliens. They're not, you know, allowing us to communicate with dead relatives, whatever. And, and to sort of embrace that like super pseudo spiritual woo hippie bullshit angle, I think is the wrong move. And I think that will paint psychedelics into a corner and make them like less acceptable by the mainstream. Yeah. That's, and so, yeah, yeah I, th I think psychedelics should be treated as, you know, pharmaceutical medicine, sure, experiential medicine, and there's nothing wrong with that. And if people happen to have these like profound spiritual experiences during the psychedelic trips, that's great. But it saddens me to see psych the uh, psychedelic industry sort of embrace that like sort of, yeah, just that weird like hippy-dippy, non-evidence-based angle because it's like, it's only going to make the industry look stupid. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? yeah. So I, I think something fun to talk about a little bit would be maybe more concrete details about kind of the nitty gritty when it comes to researching and the tools you use and where you're looking yeah. and that kind of thing. Cause we have a lot in my audience, a lot of, you know, engineers and biohackers and just people right. into kind of weird DIY stuff, both, you know, maybe from an investment research perspective, people want to make their own investments and see what's interesting, but also people who want to make stuff or, you know, uh, operate on their own body, you know, this kind of try things yeah. for themselves. I'm curious, like, where are you looking? What tools do you use over drinks? You mentioned something about like how you, how you track clinical trials. Maybe that's something we could talk about, but give us a sense of like, what, what is your stack for evaluating and, um, you know, paying attention to everything going on in this world? Yeah. So it's pretty challenging. Uh, you mentioned the clinical trial tracker. So I'll just quickly plug that. I believe it's, it is the psilocybin alpha clinical trial tracker. I'll make sure to get you a link and you can cool. put it in the show notes or something. But yeah, there, there are some great websites out there that track active clinical trials that track um, active patent applications around psychedelics. And uh, those are just sort of the table stakes for understanding what's going on. Um, I, one of the interesting things about the psychedelic industry is that because it is so sexy and transgressive and new, you get a lot of bullshitters, you know, probably a higher concentration of bullshit in this industry than in like the average industry. It's, it's very similar to crypto, right? Like we talked about this, but um, most crypto projects are like bullshit and run by people who, <laughs> who are just trying to, you know, get some quick cash. And we see this in psychedelics too. We've seen, I've seen so many pitch decks where the team is clearly not experienced in psychedelics at all. A lot of these people don't even look like they've ever tried psychedelics <laughs> and they have like no scientific team and, and like somehow they're going to do some study on like psilocybin. And it, it's clear that it's just like bullshit, right? Yet somehow these companies are able to raise like $30 million and do an RTO on some, you know, sketchy Canadian stock exchange. So um, where, you know, wh where there is bullshit, there are greater opportunities for alpha if you can actually sift through that bullshit and find the gems in there, right? Right. Um, and so it's important to first have like a solid understanding of the industry. And I think that understanding like what the whole entire stack of like psychedelic manufacturing, production, delivery, education looks like. You right. need to understand that industry so you can understand where a business model might fit into that industry, right? right? Um, in terms of the novel molecules, that's a little bit more difficult because these are drug development companies and drug development companies take a long time to make anything. You know, these are like five, 10 year bets at best. Um, and even if you had the scientific knowledge necessary to understand what they're doing, they're often very tight-lipped about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so, First of all, you need them to trust you so that they will like talk to you about what they're doing. And then you need to have the expertise to evaluate what they're doing. I do not have a biochemistry background. Luckily, I have found some very fantastic advisors that are working with me on my fund that are very enthusiastic about the psychedelic space and are more than happy to like un look into what these people are doing and determine whether it's legit or not. Right. Um, and then of course, you also have to look into the intellectual property side. So there are a lot of very 
I mean, one of the weird things about psychedelics is that, um, you know, it, the, it's not like we only started discovering psychedelics recently, right? So there's tons of research going back to like the 50s and 60s where people tried to make these interesting novel molecules. And um, oftentimes I see a lot of companies that claim they've discovered a novel molecule, but you can actually go back and find that some dude already discovered this and like the 60s But like, where are you searching? Yeah. Is it like PubMed? What, like, are there, oh, are there like specific databases? Yeah, so there there are not really specific databases. Um, there are, there are a couple websites that track new startups that are popping up in the space, um, and that track interesting studies. I'll have to give you. Some, I think one of them is called Blossom that I look at a lot. I'll, I'm like a bookmarks guy. I never remember the actual yeah, yeah. thing. So I'll, I'll send you some links to them, and people can check them out in the show notes. But yeah, it's actually as much as the space is blowing up, there's a surprisingly small number of companies in the space. So it's not that hard to like figure out who's who and to get alerted when okay. there are new companies coming Yeah, I'm trying to get all Martin Shkreli on this shit. Yeah. Like, I want to be, be like <laughs> looking up compounds and like reading yeah. chemistry textbooks and coming up with like stupid ideas about, oh, I think if I connect this to that, right. I think I have a billion dollar company here. Well, I think one of the big things to look at is to just find the list of researchers that are working on psychedelics. Um, there have been for, you know, many years, like people who's, entire academic careers were like devoted to studying certain like psychedelic compounds. David Olson out of California is one of the big ones. And he ended up uh, starting a company called Delix that's working on non-hallucinogenic psychedelics. So if you just like find out who the researchers are and sort of keep track of them, you can see what they're studying. And often I think these people are, especially right now, being constantly contacted by VCs and business people saying, hey man, you should take that research and turn it into a company. I'll back you. Right. Yeah. Do you know anything? That, so now we're going to get into the part where I throw you some curveballs we yeah. might not have necessarily talked okay, about over sure. drinks the other night. Um, nothing particularly, you know, no, uh, hard, but just random things I'm starting to think about from this conversation. Um, do you know anything about psychedelics and and performance, whether that's like co cognitive performance or is there any evidence that psychedelics can, um, you know, increase like your, I don't know, working memory yeah. or or your output or productivity, like think those types of more performance-related metrics. Do you know anything about that? So, I mean, the the evidence around psychedelics, uh, specifically psilocybin, is that it does increase like neuroplasticity, which you know, at least in theory, allows your brain to form connections between neurons that didn't exist prior to that. I've heard. I think right? I've heard the phrase uh, lateral thinking. Thrown lateral. Out. I don't know if that's yeah. a technical term or not. But. I don't know if it is either. Yeah. <laughs> lateral thinking, reduced default mode network activity. Right. And um, you know, I think that. The question of can it improve your performance in the long term is kind of like an open one. Um, I certainly don't think that if you're like an 100 IQ person, it's going to turn you into a 120 IQ person, right? right? Um, but one of the one of the interesting things that I think we might see in the future, next ten, you know 10 20 years from now, is that we will you, the the longevity people they always talk about how we need to get aging classified as a as a disease so it can be studied, right? That's mm. like a common thing you hear. I think that. Uh, in general, we need to get more things classified as like diseases or indications so that they can actually be studied seriously. So right now we sort of focus on situations where people are below the population median. Like you're more depressed than the average person. That means you have depression. You're more anxious than the average person. That means you have anxiety. And then we try to move you back up to that median, right? I'm, I'm very interested in like, can we take people that are already at the median and move them higher up? I think that that's like a whole new category of indications that we can p potentially, you know, get um, the medical community to like consider things worth studying. So like at, at some point, ADD didn't exist, right? Like there wasn't a classification of ADD. I'm sure that there 
at some point will be like a something that's similar to ADD, but more focused on like lack of creativity. It's like, oh, you know, you're not as creative as the average person. Let's really focus um, some research dollars on how to increase creativity. You and think then, that could? I think I think yeah. it could happen. Yeah, um, my, that makes what, a ton yeah. of sense to me. Just anecdotally, right? I mean, it, I feel like psychedelics definitely make you more creative, right? Yeah. I mean, at least while you're on them, I think the question is, is like one of the big things with psychedelics is like, can you actually take those insights and feelings you had during the experience and bring them with you going forward when you're true. not tripping? Yeah. And that, yeah, you, that look, is, you look at what you wrote down when you were high and you're like, this sucks. Oh, yeah, for sure. Of course. Yeah. The, the old phrase, you know, write drunk, edit sober really like applies. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So I don't know. You, do you have another curveball? Or oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Well, I think up? it was I forget. I think it might have been Hippocrates who said that you should be able to work on something drunk and sober and you ah. should be happy with it while you're drunk and sober. Interesting. Okay. That, that's the real test. Okay. Um, well, I, I will fund that study if someone can, uh, you know, get it prepared. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think the pain is a really interesting and, and, and frankly, just kind of exciting and optimistic uh, space just no. because the opioid epidemic is just like, has wreaked such havoc. Dude, it's that, bad. That it's, it's so like anyth anything that could even chip away at that is just awesome, you know? Yeah. So, so that, I mean, gets me, gets me really excited, but what, what do you make of the nootropics community and the, the kind of the biohacking community people, this kind of goes yeah. under different names, but I'm sure you're aware of what I'm talking about for a few years. There's been a fairly kind of self-conscious self-organized community or subculture, especially on the internet around. Yeah. yeah. Basically pretty, um, pretty extensive experimentation with varying levels of kind of scientific rigor, but some yeah. of them are actually quite sophisticated and, and have done somewhat compelling kind of self-studies and of one or whatever, but uh, you know, you can do that in a certain way. That's kind of compelling. Do you pay much attention to this community? Were you ever a part of it? And just, do you think it's cool? Do you think it's overrated? Uh, what do you think of it? Yeah. So first of all, I would preface what I'm going to say with anyone who like wants to do this kind of shit. I like highly encourage it. I love the idea of like the citizen scientist. I love the idea of like expressing your bodily autonomy by yeah. like trying to hack yourself. Right. Yeah. I think that's like fucking dope. Do not want to discourage anyone from doing that. Um, I will say that- But it's I, fucking stupid. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> so so here, here's what I found. When I was in college, broke as fuck, I was spending almost $400 a month on supplements and nootropics, trying out a lot of this different mm. shit. And, um, you know, like everyone else, I wanted to like improve my productivity. I wanted to improve my grades. Right. I wanted to be smarter and all this shit. And what I found after spending all this money and all this stuff was that- um, I think it was Tim Ferriss, who I'm certainly not a Tim Ferriss super fan or anything, but he had this phrase in one of his books, which is that there's no biological free lunch. And that's sort of like a play on the economic, like there's no such thing as a free lunch thing, right? You always pay for whatever short-term gain that you get in the long run. And when you talk about these people that are you know, taking all these different nootropics every single day, microdosing psilocybin, I think that it ultimately comes down to what I talked about with microdosing. Like you're hammering whatever receptors in your brain are picking up these drugs. And I'm sure it's great for 30 days, for 60 days, for, for 90 days. It'll probably help you pass a test. Um, but like, can you do that for 20 years is the question. And what sort of effects does it have if you do it for 20 years? Um, and what I sort of ultimately found um, through like a lot of trial and error, trying to be productive for, you know, my master's degree for the CFA thing, for my hedge fund job was that if you're not already motivated to do your shit, um, there's like no amount of supplements or nootropics that are actually going to make you like do a good job at what you're doing. You know, you probably actually need to like take a step back, sleep more. Coffee and discipline is what it takes, man. Like no, <laughs> no amount of supplements or microdosing is going to turn you into something that you're not. Um, and so, yeah, while right. I applaud the efforts, I don't know what, you know, the long-term future of it is. And, and, yeah. one, and one problem I have with the nootropics industry specifically is that they're being sold as supplements, which means that 
unless you literally have a lab in your house and can test them, you have no fucking idea the purity, the concentrations, or what mm. you're actually putting into your body, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, if you're, I get the appeal of like wanting to become the guy from Limitless, okay. but uh, no one's achieved that yet, and it's probably not gonna be you, is what I would say. <laughs> Yeah, you know? yeah. I think there's a lot of interesting people in that community who often do pretty impressive little studies, and it's it's a it's a pretty cool community. I just th I kind of agree with you though in that it seems to be like a lot of obsession over compounds that are like relatively low low effectiveness. I mean, yeah. And I I do think when at the point you're spending four hundred dollars a month on like a whole bunch of different little things, it's like mm -hmm. um, I'm just kind of like I don't think there's anything bad about it if you think it's helping you, but I'm skeptical that all of these like legal basic bitch like <laughs> things yeah. are really going to like uh significantly improve performance. I could be I could just be too judgmental. Yeah, and there there's also this sort of heuristic that you can use which is that if something really worked, the government would have regulated it by now. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, right. Like yeah. like is ashwagandha really going <laughs> to like make me smarter or like make me happier? Yeah. I don't know. I'm just kind of skeptical and then people are putting together these like crazy stacks of all of these different things. And I'm just like, I don't know. Yeah. I, if, I never went too I never went too far down that rabbit hole because it just seemed like a lot of work to to really get up on the research for stuff that probably just yeah. I, I wasn't super bullish on it really being a game changer. I mean to be honest, the only thing that really, really works is like Adderall, which is regulated, right? And even Adderall, like it doesn't make you smarter. It, it certainly will make you motivated to do something. But... What, do you have any takes on modafinil? Uh so I actually did try modafinil for a while. That was during that four hundred dollars a month period. Okay. Um yeah. The problem with modafinil, man, is that the people that take modafinil use it because they're not getting enough sleep. And mm. it turns out that just because you can make yourself stay awake doesn't mean that you're like performing at the level you would be if you were getting adequate sleep. So I, um, I'm I'm a big stan of modafinil. Not medical you? advice. Okay. You don't ever do anything because I said it, I do it. Um, but I, I I feel like I feel like it's the closest we have to a free lunch when really? it com when it okay. comes to productivity. Personally, for me, because it basically it's like Adderall without the, the the negative side effects, basically, um, for me, not medical advice. Yeah, I, I didn't really notice too many like negative side effects, really. I just kind of ultimately felt like, dude, maybe instead of figuring out how to like deal with out sleep, I should like try to re reorient my life to just like get enough sleep, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, totally. And, but even and, when I get enough sleep, I feel like- Really? Well, I like to, I mean, I'm kind of like the guys you were making fun of who say they microdose cocaine, yeah. <laughs> but I, I would say I microdose modafinil okay. because I only do, I'll, I'll only, so what's interesting about modafinil, I only recently learned this is modafinil is technically illegal. Like it's, it's a regulated substance, right. but then they just make these um, like replica molecules that are right, like the right. same exact thing, but technically it's not illegal. So you can buy what is effectively modafinil. Uh, it's called like adrafinil. Yes. Um, and I, you can buy that on the clear web on, on, on the internet and it's perfectly legal. And I only recently realized this. So I ordered some adrafinil. <laughs> I love how they just changed like one yeah. letter in the name. Yeah. In the name. Um, and I take basically, when I say microdose, I buy that. I just mean I take through, I experiment and I find what's the smallest dose that has the desired effect for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I have found, I think I'm relatively sensitive to it. So it's like a relatively That's very great. small amount. And since I can buy it now for, for, for like legally, um, I've been doing like a tiny amount of adrafinil once a week, basically. And on that day, I can crush it basically yeah. and, and like there's no come down. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that, I, that's what I have found. Well, if you're doing just one, one, you know, dose a week, I think that's probably fine. Uh, the nice thing about modafinil is that it's been around for a long time and it was actually studied as a drug. And so we kind of know the long-term effects. We know that there aren't people like dropping dead because of it. Um, 
what is it, adrafinil, this like derivative. I have not looked at this to be clear, but yeah. the challenge is, is that they make those changes to the molecule. And now, even though it's a slight change, you're dealing with a new molecule and who knows what the long-term effects of that are. So it's like, it might be less riskier to just like get the modafinil, even though you're sort of like technically breaking the law there, right? But who knows, man? I, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying it's going to kill you or anything. It's just like, that's sort of my take. Right. Or you um, just get a prescription. It's like what... You right, know, you get you get the fake doctor to. But I feel like you. so many doctors are like that now. <laughs> it's like, yes. I, I mean, this kind of speaks to what we were talking about before with psychedelics. Like a lot of medicine is, it's demand driven. You know, like yeah. the, the patients go in and they have it they, with the internet now and with you know word of mouth and all this. Like people have a sense of what they want, right. so they kind of can go in. And I feel like doctors now are pretty flexible with like listening to what the patient wants. Dude, yeah. You know? Uh, oh, especially, I mean, how many people that have Adderall prescriptions actually have like true ADHD? Very Yeah, few. very small, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly don't have like hardcore ADHD or anything. And I, I got prescribed Adderall just fine, like at the time of my life where I, where I wanted it. Um, you know, one other thing that I think is interesting to sort of like spitball about that we talked about mm. was this idea of what will... What, what are sort of the societal implications of like psychedelics becoming more mainstream? Um, I, I was looking at some research that suggested that fewer than 5% of Americans have ever had a psychedelic experience. It was actually maybe even lower than that. So mm. like most people have not actually touched this stuff yet. If you imagine it getting to a point where maybe half of Americans have had a psychedelic experience, what the fuck does that mean for like our lives, culture? Um, in many ways, I think that you can sort of look through history, look at history through like the lens of the drugs that define the era. So like in the 80s, it was like the cocaine, which sort of created that whole like Wall Street, high energy, high machismo, like mergers and acquisitions, stockbroker driven culture. Then we got to like the 2000s, 2010s, which were like a very Adderall driven culture. And that's where we got to like all of the Silicon Valley shit. We got to like the more quantitative mathematical stock trading. Now, if everyone's going to like get rid of, you know, put down the cocaine, put down the Adderall in favor of like LSD, like what does that mean? How does that change work culture? Um, I said to you when we were having drinks that like if you're someone who's in a job that you don't really like and you're trying to rationalize it to yourself and then you do like five grams of shrooms, <laughs> it's very hard to go back to that job. Right. Um, and we've already seen this trend where people are like leaving their their jobs on mass because of COVID and they realize they never want to go to an office again because being in an office sucks. Um does the increasing use of psychedelics like accelerate that? I don't know. I think it's an interesting question. I think to... that's a great point. And that's a really good observation that it does just kind of feel like we're entering into a, a psychedelic era, yeah. right? Like psychedelics just do seem like they, they fit so much of the other kind of cultural vibes. Yeah. You know, maybe we'll, maybe the title of this podcast will be like the psychedelic century. Psychedelic century. Psychedel yeah, yeah, that's cool. It's definitely cooler than the psychedelic revolution. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, I mean, maybe we could talk just a little bit more about, I'd love to hear about, you know, the future for you, especially from the from the creator angle, you know? So, yeah. so you've had this, you know, like I said, really impressive, really interesting, cool play where you're doing a VC fund and a podcast slash YouTube channel all at the same time to bootstrap the, you know, each other yeah. from, 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 um, a cold start. And how do you see this playing out? Cause it look, you're already having yeah. success. Like it looks like your flywheel is already running, which is so cool. And one of the reasons I, why I wanted to get you on the podcast where assuming that that flywheel keeps going, what's the next stage. And then maybe speculate if you want to about, you know, the really long term for, for what you're building. Sure. Um, so let's start with the near term. So, we're currently raising the fund, Empath Ventures. You can find it online, empath.vc. The goal is to raise $10 million. Like I said, you know, we're well on our way there, but we still have like a long ways to go. So if you're an accredited investor and you want to get involved in the psychedelic century through a venture capital vehicle, uh, you know, contact me about becoming an LP. That's certainly something that we can do. 
Um, and then in terms, in terms of the podcast, so I've about half of my episodes to date have been just monologues where I talk about certain companies or things that I find interesting. The other half of the episodes are usually interviews with people that are, um, you know, CEOs of these companies. Um, I want to potentially figure out like different formats. I think it would be cool to have like some debates. I think also, I think the video podcast format is kind of limiting. I do want to start doing a Substack pretty soon because mm. I think the type of information that you can disseminate and like the written word is very different than the type of, you know, info that you can disseminate uh, like with your voice, you know. You can have like a lot more reference. I think I might start doing sort of like a, a research roundup where I talk about like the latest research and things that I find interesting totally. in, in the written word, right? And I can like link to the studies and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think we might see like some, um, you know, some newsletter type content. And then, yeah, it'll be interesting to see like once the fund get gets raised and I'm focused, you know, more full time on the fund, am I going to be able to maintain the uh, actual like creative output of this stuff? Um, it's been very difficult already to like keep the one episode a week plus uh, like actually raise the fund. It's, it's totally. a lot of work. So, and I've done it all pretty much single-handedly up to this point. So probably we'll end up hiring some people to help out, uh, assuming I can get enough money in the door. Yeah. And then in the long run, I mean, who knows, you know, this is just going to be the first venture fund. Um, while psychedelics, while psychedelics are certainly very interesting, I don't know that they're the only interesting thing happening in the world. There are a lot of other trends that I would sort of like to get in front of. And um, so maybe there will be a fund related to some of those other trends. Right. Maybe there will be a more generic like biohacking fund at some point, you know, who knows? Like, <laughs> yeah. like I said, like the psychedelics are sort of just the marker of this like new era where we're really focused on like manipulating the brain to our liking and uh, psychedelics might be too narrow of a thesis. So maybe we'll have to focus on that a little bit. Fascinating. And have yeah. you learned anything or have you been surprised by anything in particular when it comes to building your creator platform, whether that yeah. be on YouTube or whatever, like maybe you've learned uh, cer certain things have had more upside for you than others. Like, is there a certain type of content you're doing where like that gets you all all this like deal flow and yeah. people are interested in more than others? And, and what have you learned there? Yeah, well, one of the things that's kind of disappointing about doing this stuff, and I'm sure you've actually noticed this too, is that you will create the content that is like the most interesting and the most information rich, and that will get overlooked in favor <laughs> of a lower information density show that has like a high profile guest or something, right? Right, right. Um, and so there's sort of this balance of you have to have on like the people that are already well known, but because they're well known, the, the reason they're well known is because they've been on a million other podcasts and they're not going to tell you anything new, right? But their name is going to get people to watch the video. And then you have to like somehow get those people that watch that video with that big name person to go watch some of your other shit that is like with someone that they've never heard of, but has like very interesting things to say. Um, so I'm trying to like ride that, like sort of, you know, go on that balance beam and like not just totally sell out with like the clickbait um, headlines and the the celebrity guests and like the cool, um, you know, YouTube thumbnails with like the, the soy face and everything. Um, <laughs> you know, you gotta you got avoid the soy face. Um, <laughs> but still have like information rich stuff. And um, yeah, I, I don't really know what I've been surprised by. I think if there's anything that I've been surprised by, it's that even with a small number of subscribers, you can actually get like very interesting people contacting you, totally. which is what we talked about. Yeah, before. I mean, like, I mean, you're definitely yeah. an awesome case study for, for my audience. Uh, I definitely have my audience, a lot of people who are creators or, you know, thinking about building a blog or a YouTube channel or whatever. And you're just a really inspiring example of how quickly you can get serious results and start building real things um, with a creative project on the internet. I and, appreciate and that. And so it's awesome, man. I love what you're doing. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it's really a pleasure to get you in person. It's so much more fun to actually talk with people in the flesh. 
Yeah, this is laying down the gauntlet for all future guests. You have to fly to Austin and be on the other life dude, in the flesh. That's dude, the way to do it. Dude, I mean, now that we're doing the studio, I'm like, it's going to be hard to go back. It's going to yeah. be it's going to be hard to do anything else, honestly. We'll still keep doing remote interviews um, to keep the queue going. But I, it's definitely making me want to invest more. So I'm already really starting to think like, all right, I'm going to need to get some money together. I'm going to need to rent something somewhere. I don't know. Um, but um, it's it's awesome. So glad to have you as a, in this in this new lineup of in-person interviews. And uh, yeah, I'll put links to all your things in the show notes so people listening or watching can uh, connect with you if they'd like to. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank you for coming on. This is awesome. Thank you so much, Justin. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you to Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show. And I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening. And thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.